It's often a bit mystifying how brands magically go viral overnight. Sometimes they make it big, and other times they crash and burn. Is the road to brand fame and a bump to the bottom line worth the risk? I'm Alexis. And I'm Melissa. And we're just a little obsessed with these marketing moments. So join us as we break down the craziest brand stunts, from how the idea sparked to how the heck they pulled it off. Or didn't, and of course, will it stick? Hey guys, welcome to Will It Stick. This is a new kind of format for us. We actually have a guest on today, Tim Hargis. He actually was super involved with all of the marketing for Tuft & Needle. So if you remember, we covered Tuft & Needle on episode 20. It's actually one of our most popular episodes. And I was so excited. Um, I met Tim years ago through a friend and he was nice enough to come on and share kind of the scoop and the dirt about that really amazing campaign that put Tuft & Needle on the map. We're just going to dive right in and ask him some questions. So, Tim, thank you for being here. Yeah, oh, it's great to, uh, great to chat with you guys. Looking forward to the conversation. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So to start, like, obviously, you're not with Tuft & Needle anymore. Um, when you worked there, you were the VP of Marketing and Business Development. But I'm curious real quick, where are you today? Like, what are you doing today? Yeah, so I uh, the short answer is I'm still trying to kind of figure out what I want to do next. Um, I love TNN, as you pointed out. It's been a little over three years now since we got acquired. Myself and then the, the former CEO of Tough the Needle, who's the CEO for, I don't know, about two and a half, three years. We ended up working on a startup together a few years ago that uh, unfortunately got derailed due to, to COVID and some uh, manufacturing issues. But I do a little bit of consulting, a little bit of investing, have some startup ideas that I'm thinking about pursuing. So trying to kind of figure out kind of what idea kind of excites me the most and kind of where I want to focus my energy, but still very much involved in kind of the startup tech ecosystem in general. And I have a lot of friends that are working on interesting things. So always kind of involved, kind of got a pulse on what's going on in, in the Phoenix area and just kind of staying in the loop there. But uh, we'll see what's next, but uh, some exciting possibilities. You know? Yeah. I mean, you don't seem like the kind of guy who's just going to like sit around. I bet you, you have a million things brewing, which is always fun. Tell us real quick. Okay. So you joined Tuft and Needle in 2015, correct? That's right. Yeah. The very early part of 2015. Yeah. Okay. So talk to us a little bit about like how you got involved with Tuft and Needle and what was the, like, how did you get involved in marketing? Was that what you were doing prior to joining Tuft and Needle? And what did that look like? Yeah. So I went to TNN, as you pointed out, like in the very early part of 2015, just some quick backstory and just kind of background on kind of how I got involved in the company. So one of my close friends was was Dehe Park, who's one of the co-founders of Tough the Needle. Um, we were good buddies pretty much like since they started the company. Dehe's a great guy, really, really smart guy. We used to go to the gym, play racquetball together, we'd hang out. Kind of saw the company from the beginning, even though I wasn't there and I didn't join for about two years. But uh, when he first told me, when he kind of heard about the idea and kind of knew what they were working on, I was like, ah, it's kind of interesting. They're selling mattresses on the internet. Like, it seemed kind of crazy at the time, right? But it was the very, very, very early days uh, of the company. And at that time, it really wasn't clear if it was going to be successful or not. But uh, anyway, kind of fast forward uh, about two years, um, day he ended up getting engaged. So my background is kind of in the jewelry, precious metal space. So he's like, hey, Tim, I need to get a ring. Can you help me out? Right. And I was kind of at that time, I had sold my previous company, which I'm sure we'll get into more a little bit later, kind of figure out what I wanted to do. Do I want to stay in Phoenix? Do I want to go to Silicon Valley? You know, work on a startup, et cetera. So it was kind of during that time where, I kind of figured out like I want to stay in Phoenix. I want to kind of 
probably live here the rest of my life. I grew up out here, but I wasn't quite sure at that time. But I made that decision. Like, I want to stay here. The ecosystem was growing. Um, as far as, you know, startups and tech were concerned. And he's like, hey, I need to get a ring. So we started chatting more. And it was like, hey, have you figured out what you're going to do? And I said, like, no, I'm going to stay here. So I'm either going to, like, work on a new company or, you know, join a startup. And it just kind of made sense at that time. And where we talked about it, the TNN looked like a great option. So long story short, we ended up building Dehi's ring. And then, like, shortly thereafter, I ended up uh, joining the company. He actually tried to kind of recruit me about a year prior to that. Yeah. I remember we had the conversation that's a Blanco taco over at Camelback, the corridor. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not really, I'm not really sure what I want to do right now. Like, I'm not ready to jump into anything. And it was a year later after that, that I ended up, uh, ended up joining. So I mean, that's kind of how I got started in the company and yeah, why I joined. So that's awesome. And was marketing your passion prior to that? Like, was that something that you could, I mean, cause you were at the forefront of some of these campaigns, at least if you played a big yeah. role, we're going to dive into yeah. that, but was it marketing that always excited you or was it more just the operational biz dev side of startups? Yeah, I think, I mean, I just as some you know, background, I started my my previous company that I, had, that I ended up selling before I had, you know, joined a TNN a few years after that. So I've always kind of been very entrepreneurial just since I was a kid, really. And I can't say that it was like, you know, just marketing, you know, quote unquote, that I like was excited or passionate about. It was more just kind of entrepreneurship in general. I was in EO like you are. Right. So I always had friends doing interesting things, working on kind of cool companies. And it was kind of more of a fan of what Fahey and Tough the Needle was doing in general. And when I joined, um, although I had a background in marketing just from my previous company, just kind of learning the ropes as I as I grew the company, I was more just kind of excited about the business model, kind of the space they were disrupting. And it wasn't really clear what I was going to do when I joined the company. It was kind of like, hey, sure, Tim's going to be able to bring a lot of value. I knew that I could learn. I, like, we'll find a place for him. I joined very, very early, right? At that at that time, it wasn't really clear what the business needs were. So I kind of started and I was the first person really in marketing, kind of helped grow that team with some relationships that I had and then kind of switched over to business development. But I've always loved marketing, but it wasn't like just my specialty and all that I did. It was more just kind of, I love early stage companies. I love tech startups. I had my company before I love entrepreneurship in general. And I was just kind of a big fan of what they were doing. So it felt like kind of the right time to get involved and you know, as you mentioned, startups kind of progress over time and my role certainly changed over the years, but that's kind of what I focused on for the first couple of years I was there. Awesome. Well, yeah, in our episode, we talk about that bold mattress stores are greedy campaign. And Melissa yeah. told me you were really involved in that. Like, how did that come to life? Because like, we speculate in the episode. We like talk about, we're like, we yeah. think you're in the apartment and you guys are like yeah. drinking whiskey. Like, can you give us the yeah. actual like, situation? <laughs> Right. There's there's always like the press version, right? Right. And yeah. there's like the actual real. But actually how you described it is about 80% true. Everything's true except for the whiskey part. So we're <laughs> right there. Um but yeah, so J- JT lived in the same building that I live. We used to live downtown at Cityscape. And he had one of the units. I was hanging out in his unit one night, right? And we were like brainstorming different marketing ideas. We were in a space, I guess just to give some background, that the company started in like late 2012. You know, it started to grow, but it was the first year they did a million dollars, which sounds like a lot of revenue. But when you're selling a six, seven hundred dollar price, you know, product, it doesn't take that many sales to hit a million dollars, right? So it was very kind of roller coaster ride. Like they'd sell a mattress today. And I'd remember like before I joined the company, you know, when Dayton and I were hanging out, he'd be like, Hey, we sold two mattresses today. You know, it's like a deal, right? And like in the early stages. So kind of fast forward, I mean, the company did a million the first year and then it did nine million the second year, and that's kind of when I joined. But the space started to become very crowded, right? We got a head start because, you know, Danny and JT thought of an idea that nobody else was really thinking about in Silicon Valley. But the space started to have a lot of copycats and clones, right? 
we were kind of starting to get drowned out by like larger competitors that were raising lots of money. So JT and I were hanging out. We're like, dude, we need to do something different. Like from a marketing standpoint, I said, what if we ran billboards that said mattress stores are lying to you? Dude, he was like, hell yeah. Like, let's do it. Like, <laughs> we got, he got super, super, super excited. I still remember he you know, got on his iMac. He like mocked it up in Photoshop. I was like PSA messaging, like black background, white copy, like bold as hell, right? Mattress stores are lying to you. And he was like, dude, I love it. Let's, let's, let's do it. Right. So that, that was kind of the first version actually that we actually with in his apartment. We were super, super excited about it. We're like, this is going to be totally different. Right. No one's going to expect this. Right. All of our competitors were doing the same things. Right. They all had the same type of photography is always like the millennial couple on a mattress and like an urban cool apartment. Right. It was like, that was cool when we started. Yeah, exactly. All the direct to consumer brands. Right. It's like the same style. That was cool in 2012, but then everybody started to do it, right? And everybody kind of looked the same, right? So we're like, we got to do something totally different. So that was kind of the genesis of it. And kind of fast forward, you know, maybe a week or so, we, we actually brought it up to our general counsel. We're like, hey, we've got this great idea for this marketing campaign, right? And I remember telling him, his name's Alex, great guy. I'm like, we're going to run a board that mattress stores are lying to you. And he was like, whoa. <laughs> I, I, I hate not, that attorneys get involved in marketing. It's the worst. Uh, they just like wreck, they just wreck everything, you know, because they're always like, yeah, you got to be able to substantiate your claims, all that. So anyway, story short, we uh, ended up kind of settling on mattress stores are greedy. He felt a little more comfortable with that than either mattress stores are lying to you, but we pushed it, you know, really, really, really far. But that's kind of how it started. That was mattress lying is kind of the V1. And then we ended up going out publicly with, you know, mattress stores are greedy. But yeah, that, that is exactly how it started. It was just an idea in an apartment. Um, we felt like we had to do something different. And that's that's kind of where we decided to kind of shake things up a little bit. And when you did it, did you originally think that you were going to buy like billboards right above every like, other mattress other stores? Mattress stores? <laughs> or was that like just happened to be a billboard was there? When we came up with that campaign, I mean, we had, we had ran a, a little bit of billboards in Phoenix. I mean, we were, you know, before kind of the brand voice and tone shifted kind of to the mattress stores or greedy style. We had kind of your pretty lifestyle imagery billboards, you know, with like the witty, clever messaging that would be overlaid across the photo. It was like beautiful, look great, right? When the designers would mock it up on a computer. But I think we started to realize that like that style of messaging just doesn't work for a billboard. It just gets lost, right? And every company kind of does the same thing. So we were a little familiar with billboard and we felt like it was kind of an interesting channel to explore, but we weren't really seeing the returns that we needed to justify like expanding the spend in that channel. So when we kind of decided to come up with this new marketing and we're like, this might be like the answer to like kind of the billboard channel is just, we need to switch the messaging and come up with something hard hitting. that's very, very easy to read. So we, we kind of felt a little bit more comfortable investing a little bit more into a larger test with that campaign. And we can get into the details in terms of like the return on ad spend and kind of the effect that we saw, but we did think it was an interesting channel. We just didn't have the right creative, I think, to really unlock the potential in it. Until we flip to the the kind of mattress stores of greedy style messaging. And before we jump in, because the domain plays a big role in this, before we jump into that, because that's a game changer, I think. When you came up with the campaign, so the attorney initially pushed back, then you got buy-in from the attorney. Was there any other concerns internally in the company? Or did, I know you didn't have investors actually. So any external or internal pushback on that that you guys had to convince people, or was everyone on board right away? Yeah, I, I wish it was everybody was on board right away. That would have made things a lot easier. But yeah, that certainly wasn't the case. Uh, you know, I would say the team was torn, probably split down the middle. 
Mm-hmm. Right. When JT and I came up with like this idea, you know, we very like it, but JT's he's he's comfortable with being kind of hard hitting, kind of in your face, right? I think there were a lot of people in the company that were like, I don't know if we want to be like that style of brand. It's like really like finger pointing. It felt like some people thought it felt like political type marketing, right? Where it's very negative, kind of in your face. And you know, these people are doing the wrong thing, you know, vote for me, et cetera. Which I think there was a lot of validity in those arguments, right? Like I definitely saw that. And I think other people on the team did as well. So it was definitely split. But it was very contentious for a while when we were talking about it. It was a very, very, very big shift from what the brand had done the prior two years. I mean, I remember when we were getting ready to launch that campaign. I mean, as you pointed out, originally it was Match Stores are lying to you. Then it became Match for Stores are greedy, which the general counsel kind of like signed off on, if you will. He didn't really like it. Love it. He was, like, he was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there was a there was a really really early employee that was kind of like almost like the gatekeeper of the brand, if you will, mm-hmm. and. When we told him about this idea, I remember we were in San Francisco. We were like Golden Gate Bridge on the other side of it, like beautiful view. I was with like three other people at Tough to Needle I'm on the marketing side. And I remember calling him and we started telling him, we're like, hey, we're going to run this new campaign, right? And we kind of knew that he was probably going to be the one or one of the ones on the camp of like, let's not do that. We don't, we don't feel comfortable with it. But I didn't expect the type of opposition Right, that he gave us. He, I remember like there was a kid named Dylan that was working with us at the time. I had I had the phone on speaker and Dylan and I don't want to say their guy's name, but like they were battling and screaming at each other. And he was like, hell no, like we're absolutely not doing it. Like that's not who we are. We're not going to be that brand. Like there's no way. I remember Dylan was like, dude, we're doing it. Like we're absolutely <laughs> going to try it. Like, and I don't, I really don't care. <laughs> it kind of got to that point where it's just like, we're going to agree to disagree. Right. And I think that kind of the lesson there was like, let's be willing to give it a shot, right? The, the reality is like the company started because they wanted to disrupt the industry. Yeah. There were a lot of things that we said privately that we weren't saying publicly, which we believe that like the mattress stores, their companies are ripping you off. They're not being fair with consumers when it comes to returns, right? The margins are just absolutely outrageous. Return policies are terrible. They're very expensive, right? It was just kind of built on information asymmetry and very unfair for consumers. And my position was like, if we're willing to say that privately, we should be willing to say it publicly. Right. That's what we said behind closed doors. So we're like, let's do it. This is what we believe. Let's put it out there. We've got to come up with a different style of messaging anyway, because we're getting lost in the noise. There's a million competitors saying the same things we are. We got to do something different. And there were definitely people in the team that were like, I can't believe we're you know, going to do this. We're like, let's test it. So the agreement was like, hey, we're going to launch it in Phoenix. Right? We're not going to go outside of that. We'll just limit it to billboard. I'm like, let's let's see what happens, right? If we get a lot of pushback, we get a lot of customers and potential customers are like, hey, I can't believe you guys are doing this. Like, this is out of line, you know, taking shots at companies. We're like, hey, we'll take it down, right? But like, let's let's try it and let's see what happens. And that's what we did. But what we found out is like customers loved it. Because I think what we what we realized is that like most consumers have been through the mattress buying experience. And we were willing to say publicly what everybody already thought, which was like, it's a terrible experience. Yeah. You don't have to like convince anybody that was bad. It was like, they remember that time they bought the mattress and they paid 3000. They didn't like it. They had to finance it. Like the salesman was sleazy. Right. So it was, it was just the right industry for that type of messaging. And they were like, dude, like go after these guys. Like they're screwing people. Right. And we love what you guys are doing. So it was a little bit of a gamble at the time, but it ended up working out very, very well. Yeah. And awesome. I just love something you said there because we believe in that wholeheartedly is that authenticity for a brand is the key to like success in its messaging and its yeah. marketing. And we, we love to push the limits as long as yeah. it feels authentic to the brand. And what you said is 
if we're saying it behind closed doors, like why the hell wouldn't we say it in front of our customers? And that's why I think I was so impressed with Chef the Needle because you appealed to me as like a geriatric millennial. I had never bought a pricey mattress because I was so, I watched my parents go through it. I had to be dragged to stores with them. I fucking hated it. I was like, this is horrible. Why would you pay that much money? She had bought expensive ones before. So my, my husband's dad owned an appliance and bedding company and actually owned a mattress store. So he, I mean, he was able to get us a discount, but we still paid like three grand for our mattress. And honestly, it's so funny because now in my new house, we, so we started buying tufted needles because we started having kids. And I'm like, I'm not buying a $3,000 mattress for the kids. Yeah, yeah. So I bought tufted needle and then I would fall asleep like every day in my kid's bed. I'm like, I love yeah. this. We moved into our new house. And I'm like, shoot, the $3,000 mattress is going yeah, to the guest yeah. room. We're getting a tufted yeah, needle. That's right. It's so ironic, but I love that you took that direction. I just like major props because people are so afraid of that. But like, if you're true to yourself, totally. like it's going to resonate with your audience, you know? Yeah. And I think sometimes like we, for us at Serendipit, we try to push people like, what's your true, like, what is your true brand brand message? Like, what do you truly believe? And it's hard. Sometimes they're like, they believe it, but they don't want to say it. Like a lot of brands don't put it out there, which I think I commend you guys for putting it out there, you know? And then, like you said, everyone's already thinking about it. So it's not like they're going to, the people that are going to be pissed, obviously are the mattress stores. They're not your audience. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They're not our, not our customer, but it is, it is scary. Like you said, especially if you have a different style of messaging, it's a little more like fluffy, witty, kind of clever or whatever. And like, it just, it's comfortable. You know, it's like, you're not rocking the boat too much when you make just like this big 180 shift. It, it is, it is hard. It is a little bit scary. You don't know how people are going to respond to it. So I very much get that. But as you guys know, sometimes you got to be willing to like push the boundaries a little bit if you're going to stand out. Right. It's, a, it's, it's a very competitive world everybody's in all these channels, right? You got to figure out something, right? That nobody else is really thinking about if you want to stand out. Because now, yeah. Yeah. And we use you guys as an example. Like I was actually telling someone the other day, I was like, we need to actually just send them the Tufty Needle campaign with the stats because all of our clients want to put so much shit on a billboard. They're like, we want, like you said, the imagery, we want two sentences. We want a phone number, a website and an address. We're like, where the hell are people going to look and how are they going to remember that? Like just being so simple. Like they're afraid to be like simple to be simple. It's crazy. But less less is more in that that channel for sure. Oh, always. Yeah. But speaking of simplicity, we got to talk about the domain because that is a crazy story. And when we tell it on the podcast, I just kind of jump in at like you, you evaluated a few domains and you landed on TN.com because Tuft and Needle is, hard to spell, doesn't nope. roll off the tongue, maybe on a radio commercial, but it was a process and you were kind of behind the domain acquisition. So can you talk to us about whose idea that was, how that kind of came about and what that process looked like? Yeah, absolutely. I was still going to walk you through it. I mean, I think just to, just to kind of go back a little bit, I mean, after we launched our first billboard campaign, we had the lifestyle imagery, right? Kind of the witty, clever messaging. It was just overlaid text on the image. It's one of those things where I'm sure you guys experience with your customer or your clients. It's you look at it on a computer, you're like, it looks great. And then you go actually put up the board, right? Especially if you have, you know, vinyl boards, right? They're not, they're not digital boards. You pay to print, you know, you pay to print the vinyl, you pay to put it up, right? You sign these contracts with you know, out front, clear channel, et cetera. It's a lot of money. And then you start driving the board and you're on the free one, you're like, damn, like I can't read that. You know, it lived in my computer side that is when the designer did it, but you're going miles an hour, you can't read it. 
but I think they kind of write off the channel. They're like, oh yeah, billboard doesn't work. You know, it's like, no, you just didn't, you didn't have the right creative. Right. And I think that we, we learned that the hard way. We went out those boards, but on ad spend just was very, very low. And we realized we've got to do something different. So part of that was like, we need to come up with a different messaging, right? Which was the mattress storage or greedy idea. But I think what we also realized was that our domain name, tuftandneedle.com, it just takes up a ton of real estate on a billboard, right? You only have so much space. It's you know 48 feet wide, right? You have, to, you have to make it large enough where you can actually read it, but then it just takes up so much of like the surface area of the design. You just, you can't really do much. So we, we, we weren't getting the returns that we wanted, right? So like, we, it was kind of a two-pronged approach. One, change the messaging. Two, we realized if we're going to invest in out-of-home channels, right? Not digital channels like Google AdWords, which is kind of what the company was kind of focused on in the early stages. We were likely going to need a different domain name. As you pointed out, the, the challenge with Tuft and Needle is Tuft, T-U-F-T, is just, it's not a common word, right? In the furniture space, it is, right? But most people have no idea what that means. Um, or how to spell it, right? It gets very, it gets confused with like T-O-U-G-H, tough, right? Yeah, yeah. So when we were looking in, in analytics, we were realizing in the search console, like we were seeing how customers were actually searching and finding our brand. And they were searching for things like tough mattress, T-O-U-G-H, needle mattress, right? Like all these just like variations and like combinations of words to try to find our brand. We realized like, wow, this is just like, it's just not working. Um, so we started thinking about like, what can we do differently? And I think the challenge that we had was Tuft and Needle was already like an established brand, right? We had, you know, we were three years, two and a half years in at that point, we were a $30 million kind of run rate business. Like rebranding the company didn't really make a lot of sense, right? Because we knew our brand, we had a great product. And I think this is a, a challenge a lot of startups face is like, they don't take the domain name into consideration when they're coming up with a name for their business. They just name the business, right? They're like, this is what I like. This has some meaning or something. The domain name and like and being available is like an afterthought, right? So then they which is the opposite. It's crazy, yeah. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> yeah. It's, it, so it should be part of the equation. Obviously, that wasn't something Day and JT thought about when they named the company, right? Yeah. So it was a good name. It had a cool story, right? I get all that, but it's a mouthful. It was misspelled, right? And it just took up too much real estate. So we started, like I said, kind of thinking about what can we do differently. Rebranding was off the table. Right. So it was what other variations of tough and needle like for a domain name could we come up with that might work? So you think about like the logical options you would normally go to, which is like this is a three-letter or three-word brand. Can we do an acronym, right? Which is very common, which in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of times is great. But ours is T-A-N. It's tan.com, right? So we don't want to buy tan.com because people are going to think something totally different, right? So we're like, tan.com doesn't really make sense. We can't do an acronym. So then it was like, tn.co right it's like that's great it's two letters but we're gonna lose all the traffic to the .com so I think the challenge is like we were kind of boxed in like I'm very much a believer and always have been in like very premium domains so I kind of brought up the conversation I'm like guys we're growing very fast we clearly have product market fit we want to scale this business right like it's it's going to be a hundred two hundred million dollar business in the next few years let's just get the best version, the best domain that we can at this point. Like if we settle for .co, go with tn.co, sure. It might only be $50,000 or something like that. But the reality is now the donor of tn.com knows who wants to buy tn.com if we go out on the .co. We're going to have a lot of leakage because people are going to go to tn.com and they're going to land on some random page of this domain name is for sale, which is like terrible for our customer base, right? Two, we become a victim of our own success. The domain name just goes up in price because now the owner of tn.com knows where we want to buy it. They know who we are. They know how big we are, et cetera. 
so it's just like you're just kind of kicking the can down the road. So I was very much like, hey, if we can make a run at tan.com, like, and we can actually find a way to get it from a financial perspective, like, let's just do the right thing now, right? Rather than like, wait, because the biggest risk for us was we're boxed in. We don't have any other options. If the tan.com sells to some other company, right? And we're like, let's just wait. Let's not buy it now. Let's buy it in the future. And it's gone. There's nothing we can do at that point. We have no other domain, right? We can't come up with a variation because there is no other variation that makes sense for it. We can't do the acronym. We don't want to be on the back code, right? So we were boxed in. So I think at that point, we decided that we're going to make a run at TM.com. I had bought premium domain names in the past. I knew brokers in the space. So I was very much like familiar with valuations, what two letter.coms that sold for. Um, so I reached out to the owner um, and he actually owned the largest domain portfolio in the world. He ended up selling part of it to GoDaddy a while back. He still has his premium domain collection that he sells here and there. But his name is Kevin Ham. But anyway, he owned TN.com. So I reached out, started talking to his broker, I reached out to my broker friends in the space. And I said, like, hey, where, you know, where are two letters trading at? Like, where do we need to be to kind of make a run at this? And the reality is he didn't need the money. He owns all these domains. He sold them. He's made a fortune, right? He's not the type of owner that's just going to like fire sale this domain, right? He knows the value of it. So we went back and forth for four months, right? And like his initial offer, uh, or Mike, the Royal, his initial price that he asked was millions and millions of dollars, right? And I'm like, whoa, like there's <laughs> oh no way we, and we were at, we were like a bootstrap company, right? I'm like, there's just, there's no way in hell, like we can, we can afford that. But I went back to him. I said, listen, like, here's the situation that we're in. At the time, it wasn't public that I worked for Tough the Needle. I didn't have it on my LinkedIn. I didn't have it on my Facebook. So I was going in as like, hey, I'm a broker, like advising a startup that's in for a name. So he didn't know who we were. And I basically said like, hey, we're we're so far apart. Like this just doesn't really make sense to like continue the conversation. But I'm like, if things change, like we're open to having a serious conversation. I didn't take the approach of like, hey, your domain's not worth that. You know, your debt price is crazy. Because like, if you make guys like that upset, right? That know the value of the name. They're just like, screw you. Like, I'm just going to jack up the price on you. Yeah, they're just going to jack up the price on you later. So I was very much like, hey, like very respectful. This is a great name. We absolutely love it. We're just not in a position where we can really make a run at it right now. And long story short, the broker came back a month later and said like, hey, like I talked to the owner and, you know, we're willing to come down a little bit. I countered back, right? We were still pretty far apart at that point in time. Long story short, like two months after that, so this was like four months after we had started the negotiation for it. It got to a point where it was like a little bit higher than we were really comfortable spending. But it was like, is it really worth the risk to say no and just like wait? And then it sells to somebody else, the pros up, et cetera. So we decided like, let's just bite the bullet and just get it done with. It's a little more than we want to spend, but it's not a lot more. So like, let's just do it. So we ended up buying the domain. And I think what I would tell people that are like looking at premium domains is there's interesting ways to finance these. A lot of times you can do owner financing. So you can spread out the payments for years. So as the company grows, right, you can afford those higher payments. Yeah. That's how I structured the deal. It was like a percentage down, right? And then the payments were spread out over, you know, multiple, multiple years. So as the company grew, we could afford larger payments. So I basically graduated it. So that's how we were able to afford it. The advantage is like, this is an asset where you can start using it day one, even though the domain is not paid off, if you will. It's held in escrow. You control the DNA. You control the name servers. We started using it right away and capturing the value and leveraging it from day one, even though we had you know years to pay it off. So we ended up getting the name and it was a game changer for the company. I mean, a two-letter.com, it just doesn't, doesn't get any better than that. But it was seven figures. It wasn't cheap, but it was hands down the best investment that we made. 
Yeah. So smart. I mean, what a lesson for startups. I mean, for any business, but especially startups who are like stressed about every penny. That's great advice. I didn't know that, that you could finance a domain that way, but like to make sure you lock it down, like even if it's more than you're comfortable spending or like, then you can spend because you don't have the cash in the bank yet. There's alternatives to do it. And if, I mean, if you're going to blow up like Chapter Needle did, you better invest in that domain early. Yeah. I mean, crazy. Because if you're like, if if I'm spending, if my marketing budget is 20, 30, $40 million a year, it's like, why would I not spend, you know, 2% of that one time to get this incredible domain name, right? That's the entry point of my brand, right? Versus like, spending a fortune on marketing, driving to like this really, really bad domain where there's leakage, people forget it, they can't spell it right, it's using, it just doesn't make sense. I'm like, why not take a percentage of that marketing budget that's large and buy the best best version of your domain possible and then build on a solid foundation versus investing a lot of money into a, a terrible brand and a, yeah. a terrible domain, so. Yeah, absolutely. You so you like dominated in outdoor space, but like, what was your overall marketing mix? Cause you said you did Google ads. Like what was the mix? Yeah. So I mean, when the, the company kind of, I'd say after like, year, well, really the first year, there wasn't a lot of marketing, right? The spend was very, very, very low. It was mostly just like organic from Word of mouth. existing customers. Yeah. I mean, did a little bit of digital marketing, but the spend was, you know, very, very low. When I joined the company, we started focusing on AdWords, which is a channel that myself and a good friend of mine had a lot of experience in and scaling. So we had a small team, right? We didn't, we were a bootstrap company. The company started with $6,000. And, and I say that because we, we didn't have the luxury of like having a hundred million dollars in the bank because we were venture back where we could just spend and try all these things. And if yeah. it didn't work, it didn't matter. We had to stay profitable. We had to be very scrappy and resourceful and, and accountable for every dollar that we spent from a marketing perspective. So I'm, I'm very much in the camp of like, let's focus on one channel. Let's make that work and keep testing and iterating. And so we find a way to make that channel work versus like, oh, we got to do Facebook, we got to do Instagram, we got to do Twitter, we got to do Snapchat, got to do LinkedIn, you know, got to do SEO, got to do content. A lot of times companies just spread themselves too thin. They don't really figure out a channel that actually works. So we focused on it. It took a little while, but we went from spending like $10,000 a month, right? To where we could consistently spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a month, like within a six to seven month period. So that started to really scale the brand. The return was very predictable. So we could invest in it, acquire customers very cheaply, pay off the credit card and just kind of rinse and repeat. So we focused on that channel for, that was our primary channel and really until we started doing billboards. But like I said, eventually 200,000 a month and AdWords became a million dollar a month spent. Right? We just scaled and scaled and scaled and scaled. And the advantage is you can scale those channels with a very few people. Most channels, it's, you know, you have to Multiple people are going to run it. You got creative designers, all these, all these people to support like one channel with AdWords. Like once the channel's figured out, you can just, just keep ramping more money. Up yeah. yeah, the returns go down over time, right? But you get a lot of leverage internally. You become a very small team that manages a very, very large spend. So that's kind of how we started and kind of what we focused on. And then we got into Billboard and we realized, you know, that was a great channel for us, as you mentioned, with the Mattress Stores a Greedy campaign. But we took like 20% of our spend to kind of like test, if you will new channel. That's kind of how we thought about it. We're like, we have to stay profitable. We're not just going to go dump tons of money to this new channel. We don't know anything about, right? Well, let's take a portion of our spend and let's start experimenting because we knew at a certain point, like there's only so much search volume for mattress related terms. We were going to kind of cap out right on yeah, Google AdWords. So, so we're like, we have to start experimenting. Let's start placing some different bets. Let's see what works, right? With the same strategy, let's focus on billboard. Let's figure out how to make billboard work because we knew if we figured it out, we can scale. It's a channel that has you know, obviously potentially a lot of volume because it boards all over the country. So 
that was a big unlock for us. We did some other channels like radio and then over time television, but our primary channels were were kind of AdWords and billboards for any, you know, for a period of time until we were forced to go into like the mainstream channels like television, which become a lot more expensive, a lot harder to track, um, et cetera. But that's kind of how we thought about it. We started with TN.com just on billboards because we really wanted to measure the effectiveness. So we had tuckthenial.com for our digital channels, right? And then we, we segmented all the billboards into TN.com so we could really see what the true return was because they were different domains. Um, and that's how we felt comfortable. Like the returns are great. They're really, really good. They're starting to become more predictable. So we, at that time, started to spend more a larger percentage of our marketing budget on billboard and out-of-home channels over time. But that, that's kind of how the mix was to start. I don't know what it is today, but when I think when I left, we were maybe more like 50-50 or 60-40 out-of-home yeah. compared to digital. Huh, wow, um, that's impressive. That. Yeah. They could track so it true. so easy. They yeah. weren't like marketing it anywhere. You yeah, know? that's so smart. Yeah, it was good in the beginning. It's interesting that you earlier said the term don't get that you were boxed in because I want to talk about Mattress Firm and they had that don't get boxed in campaign. And we were obsessed, if you couldn't hear it on the podcast, of the way Tuft and Needle really handled that conversation on social media. Like your voice, you said it earlier, you said your voice and tone of the company changed when you came up with this edgy campaign, but the way that you guys handled social media and also the PR stuff, like I was reading articles and the way that you responded to reporters' comments and questions maintained a similar voice and tone. It was really impressive. So talk to us a little bit about like how you directed your social media team or whomever that was to be comfortable responding that way. And what did that look like when that campaign came out for you guys? I wasn't on the social media team like directly, but I kind of saw like the approach and strategy kind of from a high level. And I, I think the advantage that Tough Needle had was, and I think this was a mistake the mattress were made at the time, is like they picked a fight with the hometown team, right? We ran these billboards as the mattress stores are greedy. We ran them in Phoenix. They found out about them, of course, you didn't like it, right? And I get that. I understand why. But they started running this like counterattack, but they ran it only in Phoenix. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense because we were like the hometown team. We were the darling of Phoenix, right? Like everybody knew Tough Needle was. They loved us. I mean, our customers even outside of the you know state of Arizona loved us. But like we were like the Phoenix Suns, right? And it's be like the Los Angeles Lakers coming in and like attacking Phoenix, the Phoenix Suns, right? And our home. It's like it doesn't really make a lot of sense, right? I don't so, know about now because now LA lives yeah. in Phoenix. But yes, that's, that's five true. years ago. Yes, that is very <laughs> true. So we kind of drug them into a battlefield where where they just couldn't win. Right. And that was in like the court of public opinion, social media. Right. We knew that like mattress firm customers, they're not going to like rally behind mattress firm. if like mattress firms getting attacked. Right. Like because their they don't, customers don't care about mattress firm. They hated the experience. It was bad. They don't have like that love. Right. That like the tough you know, customer base did for the brand. So we just took them to the battlefield of social media where we knew we could actually just crush them. Right. So we started like promoting that they were attacking us on our Facebook. Right. We showed we had you know, screenshots of their ads and billboards campaign that, you know, don't get boxed in or whatever they were running against this, right? And all it did was like galvanize our customer base. So they would start sharing this on their wall, like, Tough Needle, go get those guys, you know, like, yeah. I love Tough Needle, like, I had a terrible experience shopping at Mattress Firm, like, I love what you guys stand for. I hate what they stand for, right? And I think Mattress Firm started to realize pretty quickly, like, this is just not a game that they really want to play. They're not going to win in that field, which is social media, the court of public opinion, right? I think in the, in the whole team kind of felt the same way. Like, we already have these aggressive words up. Let's troll them on social media. Like, let's have fun with this, right? And it energizes the team. Yeah. And they feel like they have that freedom. So they would 
we'd battle back and forth on Twitter. They would post some stuff. Like we would respond, right? Like our customer base would like, like everything we did, right? And they'd hate everything Mattress Firm was doing. So it was fun. I mean, it was lighthearted and fun. We had some good battles. I mean, and they, they came after us. But I think at the end of the day, like I said, they, they picked the wrong fight, right? And they picked it in the wrong area. They shouldn't have done it in our hometown. I bet it just everyone- It doesn't make a lot of sense. I could just see that. Like, I bet we, like our team would get so fired up. Like yeah. it would just drive so much energy in the office, I bet. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, and it did. I mean, we had we had fun. We had some other campaigns that, I don't know if you guys knew about, like the Mattress Pet campaign. Yes. We, ran a, we ran a campaign, which is, I think it said $100 says you won't choose Mattress Firm, mattressbet.com. Yep. <laughs> we had this, like, you go to the landing page and it was always like, hey, like if you're considering buying a mattress and you're shopping at Mattress Firm, like, great. But like, give us a shot. If you don't like our mattress, we'll give you every penny back. On top of that, we'll give you a hundred bucks, right? There's a mattress from gift card to go buy another mattress. That's a better fit for you. And we ran this campaign against them in Phoenix and it just absolutely crushed it because we knew they couldn't do the same thing in reverse. No, right? no. Our mattress is a lot better. We have a better experience. We have a real return. We're going to give them all their money back. Not just from do that. So they don't want to play that same game. So we, we ran that campaign against them. I think we had like a 1% redemption rate of customers. <laughs> that like, Hey, your mattress wasn't ideal for me. And like, I ended up going to mattress from buying it. We were like, Hey, we sent him a card. He says like, Hey, thanks for trying us out. It didn't work, but let's find the mattress. that's right for you. Here's a hundred bucks to mattress firm. Yeah. Right? The only it was, it time was a great that you celebrate having a low redemption rate of something is that yeah. kind of campaign. Yeah. So funny. So how did it actually end? Like, did they just relinquish and pull it? Or well, they, there was like lawsuits yeah. and such. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it, you know, this went on for, I don't know, maybe a year and a half, two years before they ended up filing a lawsuit against us. I think they kind of got tired of us. Which I understand. We poke the bear a lot of a lot of time. You know, we ran mattress stores or greedy billboards in Las Vegas when they had like the mattress convention of all the mattress manufacturers and stores. You know, like maybe we went a little bit too far in certain places. You know, I, I don't I don't know for sure where that where that line is. I'm sure we crossed it. We definitely pushed it because it was just like it was just kind of a fun battle, just kind of picking fights with the industry because we had a better experience for customers and consumers knew that. So anyway, yeah. Long story short, they they aren't filing a you know a lawsuit. They alleged all these things. I was, I was named in the lawsuit along with a handful of other people at TNN ended up settling and it kind of went away. We agreed to take down some of the billboards. Some of this stuff happened after I left, Yeah. but on balance, like we came out way, 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 way ahead, switching all of our messaging to this and just settling a lawsuit with mattress firm versus just staying comfortable and kind of playing it safe. Had we done that the entire time, the brand wouldn't have grown nearly as big as it did if we would have done. So the trade-off was Absolutely worth it. And it was a tremendous amount of fun while while it happened. So yeah, absolutely. Is there like a marketing tactic that you thought would work or a campaign you thought would work that like just didn't that you tried when you were at TNN? Yeah, well, there's there was certainly a lot, you know, that we tried. Like you guys know, you just you don't always know. So we tried a lot, but I think there was a couple that kind of stand out that I think the team was very much convinced were going to work and just cannily didn't. I think one stands out right away is influencers. Mm. We never had a lot of luck with influencer marketing. We really, really struggled with that. And I don't know if it's because we didn't have the right approach. We didn't have the right influencers. I, I think it's just one of those channels that like, and you guys probably remember this, like in 2017 and 2018, it was like all the rage was like influencer marketing. Got to yeah. get influencers on yeah. Instagram. Like Everybody was doing it. It was like all the rage, right? People were paying millions of dollars to the Kardashians to promote their product. One of our competitors, Casper, did the same thing, right? So it was like one of those channels that like became very trendy very, very, very quickly. 
So I think we very much was kind of like FOMO, like, oh, we got we to jump into influencer market. We got to do that, right? And we were never able to really make it work. It didn't do very well. Like I said, maybe it's a combination of the approach. I think part of it is just it's very hard to measure. It's very, very, very hard to track. I think the costs to do it are rel- relatively high compared to the organic reach that you get. Facebook and Instagram started to drop in the organic reach year after year. So I just don't think you got as much reach as a lot of companies thought they were getting because they would just look at how many likes and how much influence that particular influencer had, but they wouldn't think of like what percentage of that base is actually seeing mm-hmm. this particular post, right? And we did that. We experimented for, I don't know, probably a year or so and just didn't have a lot of luck with it. So I think that's one. I think the second one that stands out to me is when I first joined the company, the company had already started shooting a very expensive commercial. They like wanted to go into television. And we had this you know, high profile branding agency, right? And they were like, oh yeah, we're going to you know, shoot this big commercial. It's going to have a huge budget and we're going to shoot at all these different locations. And I had no experience in television. Like I'd never shot a commercial. Like I didn't know what this stuff costs, right? And I remember asking the cost and they were like, oh, it's going to be about a half a million dollars. And I was like, <laughs> half a million dollars? Like we're like a $9 million top line brand, right? We're not very profitable. Like we were profitable, but we weren't printing cash by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. I was like, do we even have a half a million dollars in our, like, can we even do that? You know, like, so I started asking some questions, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, but you know, they they were in New York. So they were like, yeah, but you know, that's just what stuff costs. If you want to get the best talent and have the best production crew, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, I remember like, again, Dylan was on our team and myself were like, guys, this just doesn't feel right. Like a half a million dollars for a brand and a new channel that we know nothing about. We have nobody on our team that knows how to buy, you know, television spots. We don't have a media buyer on our team. I was like, this just doesn't seem right. But at that point, at that point in time, we joined. It was like it was so far along. Like the storyboard had been done. I think they had started yeah. hiring people that it was kind of like it was kind of a lost cause at that point. So we just were like, all right, we're not gonna, you know, kind of fight against this anymore. So, my long story short, we shot this very expensive commercial. Looks beautiful. We spent a half million dollars on it. I think it's on YouTube. You probably can watch it. <laughs> it's, it's we it, what didn't make sense was like we're gonna spend half a million dollars shooting a commercial. We don't have the media budget. To shoot it, that wasn't even the media budget. Holy cow. Right, exactly. And like, it was just totally backwards. It made no sense. I don't think any of the company thought that. It was just like, oh, we're going to trust this branding agency in New York. Like, they know what they're doing, right? It's like, but they're just in a different world in New York. Like, it's not Phoenix. They don't work with bootstrap companies. Like, it's just, it was kind of a flawed strategy from the beginning, but we did it. We started running some commercials behind it. Like you said, it was a pretty small budget, which makes no sense because we spent a half a million dollars shooting it. It didn't do very well. We had a commercial that we shot before that. We spent 30 grand on that far and away outperformed this very expensive half a million dollar commercial. So we certainly made that mistake. Should have like tested some like, you know, ideas on YouTube to see kind of have some like at least some kind of directionally correct idea on like what approach was going to work before we just like went all in and just spent a half a million dollars shooting this expensive commercial. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't work. So. And like nowadays too, with connected TV, it's like so much easier to buy well, to buy great placements that you can afford, but also I don't think high production commercials are always what the customer wants, depending on the brand. So we don't, we rarely recommend that. We like, I mean, it needs to feel good and look good, but like for a brand like Tuft & Needle, who is a little edgy, you know, youthful, it didn't need that fancy schmancy thing. Yeah. (laughs) I very much agree with you. Wish wish we would have known that before we spent half a million dollars, but (laughs) Well, you could have called Serendipit, but I mean, I know you would. I know you would. So what was like the most challenging part of being at Tuft & Needle during that time? Like as a startup in your role? 
Sounds like you were in a lot of different, you wore a lot of different hats. Yeah. Well, I, I think the thing that, that probably stands out the most to me is, is it was just being bootstrapped, right? It's, it's very, very hard being bootstrapped in a space that's becoming very, very competitive, right? You have competitors that are raising, our largest competitor raised $350 million. They ended up not even being nearly as successful as Tough to Needle. But the point is like their megaphone is so damn big. It doesn't yeah. matter if your strategy better. It doesn't matter if you execute better. They can just spend and spend and spend and spend and kind of drown you out. And that's what our largest competitor, which is Casper, did, right? And, and over time, they built this narrative that like they were the first, they were the leader, they were the pioneer, which which wasn't true. Tough Neal started almost two years before Casper started. But yeah. they, you know, we had this head start, but it's like they closed this gap so fast because they had so much money behind them. Yeah. And it's like instantly we became the Pepsi, right? It's like, we were the second place company, right? We felt like, oh, Casper is the best. Like they're the ones that started this category, right? And it just candidly wasn't true, but we didn't have enough money to kind of fight that battle. So we ended up kind of using their weight against them. And we let them kind of spend money at the top of the funnel, building category awareness, which can be very, very expensive if you're in a new category. And then we started bidding on their search terms like Casper. So we would kind of insert ourselves kind of more middle of the funnel. And position tough the needle against Casper versus trying to advertise at the top of the funnel, like doing Howard Stern podcasts and stuff. They're like Monday night football commercial stuff we could never ever afford to do. We let Casper do all that heavy lifting, right? That was kind of the approach that we had to take because we didn't have the budget. But I think looking back, it would have been nice to have some additional money where we could like experiment with. But the company was like bootstrap. We didn't, we weren't super profitable. So we just didn't have a lot of money to like experiment with. And I think it just became challenging over time when your competitors have so much money, you have very little, you want to try things, you want to do things you're like, I can't afford to be wrong. I can't afford to lose money. So we just kept doubling down and betting on the channels and get bet on for years versus being able to kind of like, you know, expand out and kind of try some different, different things. So I think that was probably the biggest, the biggest challenge we're going to TNN. It wasn't in the beginning, but like Casper specifically, I mean, they just started growing so fast because they had so much money. So but the benefit is they didn't retain all their ownership and you guys did. And so when you yeah. you had the uh, acquisition, the owners walked away with 100% minus whatever percentage they gave some of the key employees like yourself. That's a crazy yeah. win. And Casper will never be able to say that. Yeah. It's like you take no, that. No, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, I think to your point, it really just depends on like how you define winning. Like what does winning mean to you? If it's yeah. vanity metrics and it's headlines and it's press mentions. Sure, Casper probably won there. But like when it comes down to dollars and cents, right? From the founder's perspective and the key employee's perspective, and you're absolutely right. They went public. They've never been profitable. They ended up getting taken private for less than the amount of money they raised. So the investors lost money. The employees probably got nothing, right? So, but it took a long time for that to happen. In the meantime, it's like there's this feeling that like we're losing. Yeah. Right. Because they're just growing so fast and they're in the New York Times and we're not because we're in Phoenix and we're not in the big city. So it's, it can be painful to go through, but I think you just have to realize if you just consistently build good fundamentals over time, the results will take care of themselves. It just may not happen in the short term. Yeah, absolutely. This was amazing. Yeah. I have to ask one question before we wrap up is, is there a brand right now or that maybe just in your life that you really admire that's done really off the wall, cool campaigns or some kind of stunts? And, you know, our podcast, we really focus on those unique campaigns and stunts, which is why we cover yeah. Tuxedo. Yeah. Is there one that you're you're interested in or obsessed with right now? I don't know if I would say there's one that stands out right now, but I think the one that stands out to me, this goes back probably like 15, 16, 17 years, 
that I'll never ever forget. You guys probably remember this. It was LifeLock. You guys oh, remember yes. that? Yeah, we covered that Fire. one. That was your first episode. Yeah. Oh, was it? Yeah, like that one. Like I actually had lunch with or coffee with Todd Davis, the founder of LifeLock, maybe I don't know, a year, year and a half ago. Super nice guy. He's a local guy. I'll never forget when I first I saw that commercial and I was like, holy shit, this guy put his social security number on the side of a semi-truck and drove it through New York City. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. I was like, that is absolutely insane. Right. I was like, to this day, that's probably like one of the best marketing. You call it a stunt strategy, whatever you want. I mean, that put LifeLock on the map. And I think the funny thing is like his identity actually got stolen. I think yeah, like multiple times. 10 times or something. Yeah. yeah. It's like, who cares? He built this gigantic company. It doesn't matter that his like identity was stolen and some people took out some small loans of the social. Like, look at the trade-off that was made, right? Like, so I, I think that's probably my most like favorite marketing strategy or like approach that I've probably ever seen because it was extremely gutsy. I mean, you can imagine the conversations when he told his employees, like, I'm gonna put my social security number on the side of this truck and drive it through New York City. Yeah. Right. And it just became like, if he's willing to do that, like this product must be incredibly safe. Incredible. Right. Like it's yeah. So that's the one that stands out. I think if you guys ever get a chance to interview Todd, you definitely should. But, um, we, he's on our uh, list. So if you want to make an intro, we would love it. Cause we are, that's the re- that yeah. was my inspiration initially. Yeah. I was like, I started my career in PR at the, like in Scottsdale. That was the first campaign I remember. Cause it was birthed out of Arizona. Yeah. And yeah, I was yeah. like, what in the world is this? I just remember being so blown away at that time. It was like, oh, five, oh six, something like that. So yes, I agree. That's a crazy. Yeah, that was uh, that was incredible. I, I still can't believe someone would actually have the guts to do that. I mean, yeah. you got to be to run run a national commercials with your social security number on them. I mean, how crazy can you be? But it obviously worked very, very well. So that's yeah. probably probably my favorite one of all time. But awesome. I'm sure there, I'm sure there's some companies now doing some cool stuff. But I feel like in the direct to consumer space, all these a lot of these brands just they all kind of look the same. They're all just kind of doing the same thing. I really hoping that there's one that kind of takes a different approach that kind of, that kind of starts to stand out. Yeah, I agree. I think we're ready for someone to spice things up a little bit, but this was your job. Yeah. Yeah. This is a joy to have you on. Thank you for your time. And we hope that when you do your next big thing, you do some crazy marketing stuff so we can cover (laughs) it again. Yeah. Cause this, you Uh, always have cool ideas, but. um, I'm sure that I will. It was great to chat with you guys. yeah, Yeah. Thanks. So thank you all for listening Please don't forget to leave us a five-star review, right, Alexis? Five-star review on wherever you listen. (laughs) Wherever you listen. And we'll see you next week for another great story. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks, guys.